Nice. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be back here worshiping with you today. It was great uh, to be again worshiping here. I really, I found it really cool the violin. It made me feel like I was at John MacArthur's church or something like that. It was pretty cool. We don't have that kind of thing at trails. We're not that fancy, but um, yeah. It really made me feel like a John MacArthur's church, but I got to tell you, you're not going to have John MacArthur preaching to you today, though, unfortunately. I would like that, too. So, again, my name is Charles. I'm originally from Brazil, and as uh, Matt said, I'm going to be preaching in English today. And a funny story about that, my, the first time I preached in English was about four years ago, and uh, the night before, I was so terrified I was so terrified that I dreamed that I preached my whole sermon in Portuguese and no one said a word about it. So please, if I am saying anything in Portuguese, tell me, raise your hand and say, hey man, what does that mean? You know, translate that to me. That, that's a real story though. That's a real, that, I'm terrified of that. So again, I'm Charles. I'm originally from Brazil. I've been living in Canada for about five years. Um, this is the country where I met my wife, my beautiful wife, Cassandra. She's sitting right there. So uh, after the service, we're going to be hanging out here for about 10 to 15 minutes. So if you want to learn some cool words in Portuguese, she can teach you. <laughs> so Cassandra and I we have been married for about a year and three months. And uh, we've been attending a church in the south end of the city called Trails. Um, Cassandra and I have been leading the Bible study there, uh, the youth group there, sorry. We have been leading the youth group there for about nine months now, and uh, we've been going through the book of Romans with them, which has been really, really exciting. Um, and as Aaron mentioned last week, trails in Trinity share of the same unceasing love for God's word, and consequently, his bride, the church. Uh, like Trinity, trails also believes that the church is essential at all times because it is the foundation and the buttress of truth. The church is where God's people love, encourage, and nurtures one another. The church is where God's people are trained into righteousness from the preaching of the Bible. It's where the Christian can feel like home in a depraved world. And all of these biblical aspects is what captivated Cassie's heart and mind to be part of Trails Church because um, that's, that's the place we want to be. And I'm not telling you this to entice you to come to trails or to brag about it, but I'm talking about this because we share of the same things. It was uh, about two months ago, if I'm correct, that I came here for the first time. It was actually at your first meeting. And uh, Aaron and I, we were really encouraged that there were other churches that were faithfully and obediently committed to remain open with their churches, to encourage their, the saints to be a place where the saints can gather and can worship God. And uh, it has been a great fight that we've been put up for the past few years. It has been a great fight. And as you can see, as you can look around, the Lord has honored your fight. The Lord has honored your fight, and that's a great blessing. You have not been shy away uh, from this great fight that we have been put up for the past few years. And uh, I'm really glad that the Lord has honored it. But my job here today is not to talk about this particular fight, but to talk about a different one. My job here is to talk about the singular 
fight, the singular and most important fight a Christian should be engaged on. A fight that does not exclude the other fights, but is much more grandiose than any other we could be engaged on. The fight we're going to talk about today is the one that should actually regulate our Christian lives during our daily walk with the Lord. And this is exactly the reason why it's so important for us to be reminded of it. We are to be constantly reminded of this fight so then we can set up our GPSs and put all our efforts toward it. Because nothing is worse than a person is spending all their energies sidetracked and finding lesser things than this and putting all their efforts on lesser things than this one particular fight. So for us to understand that and to be able to set up our GPSs to the right location, I would like to invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. I chose this passage simply because uh, of essentially what it represents, but also because I believe that if there is someone who is experienced on the subject of fights is the Apostle Paul. He faced every kind of retaliation imaginable. He fought many fights. But at these very verses that we're going to be approaching today, he highlights the one fight he considered to be the noble one. So my final goal for us here today is to see what God's inspired apostle um, describes to be the noble fight. But not only that, my goal as well is to try to understand, try to grasp what keeps him fighting it, what encourages him, and what is his fuel. So let's read our text. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the, righteous, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So to properly understand this text, um, I think it would be really helpful if we gave a step back and quickly gazed upon the letter as a whole. This epistle has a great emotional weight to it, and I don't want us to miss it. So first of all, who was Timothy? I'm aware that you guys are going through First Timothy, so you probably know who Timothy was. Timothy was essentially... Um, the replacement that Paul and Silas, Silas, Silas or Silas? Silas? Silas, there we go. The, this, this is my Greek kicking in. <laughs> so, that Paul and Silas, Silas, my goodness, Paul and Silas found to supply Mark's absence during Paul's second missionary journey. Um, Timothy was a young man, half Greek and half Jew. Paul and Timothy were together in the ministry for 20 years. The Bible says that Timothy knew Paul pretty well because he knew his teaching, he knew his conduct, he knew his aim of life, he knew his faith, his patience, his love, his persecutions, and his sufferings. Paul considered Timothy to be his son in faith. He addressed Timothy intimately through his letters, calling him his true child in faith. 
And as a matter of contrast between both of his letters, 1 and 2 Timothy, in 1 Timothy, we see that Paul writes to Timothy, giving him guidance of how people should behave in the church of God and how the church should be structured. In Paul's second letter, however, he is commanding Timothy on how he should behave as a leader and as a follower of Christ. At the very beginning of his second epistle, we see Paul charging Timothy to be a faithful leader since Timothy would become one of the deacons at the church, uh, of the church at Ephesus. But at the end of the epistle, right at where we are, chap- uh, chapter 4, verse 6, we see that the tone of the letter changes. The tone of the letter changes, and rather than providing instructions to Timothy, Paul turns to a contemplation to his, uh, to a contemplation to his, of his own Christian life. Here is where he mentions the noble fight. And another interesting fact, and uh, to me is the, the fact that makes this my favorite letter of Scripture, is that um, while safely in Macedonia, when he wrote his first letter, the second letter was completely different because he was in prison in Rome. But that was not just another imprisonment. That was the last imprisonment of the apostle. This is in fact, this letter, this epistle, 2 Timothy, is in fact, in fact contains the very last words penned by the apostle. Couple months after writing this epistle, the apostle was sentenced to death and beheaded by Nero. So we have here in our hands the very last words ever penned by the great apostle. And as we see in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, we see that Paul knew he was about to be executed. He said, the time of my departure has come. Paul knew he was about to be executed and thus inspired by the Spirit, writes this letter and especially this portion carried by a great emotional tone. Again, this portion of the letter has a great emotional significance because the great theologian who has ever existed aside from Christ, this giant of faith, is about to be killed. And he's aware of it. And what he does, he, contem- he, he, he stops his instructions to contemplate on his own Christian life. So this contemplation is essentially Paul's very last words. Here is where he shows to us, he displays to us what, was, what moved him internally, what moved his heart, what moved his heart, what moved his thoughts, what was his energy, what was he engaged on during his Christian life. By analyzing the, the tone, this change of tone in the, in, the, in the epistle, John Calvin says that Paul is here giving Paul's epitaph. The apostle lifts his letter in his apostolic career to its wonderful finale. Paul is then providing Timothy with his main fight, with his fuel to remain active during his ministry. And my question to you is, do you believe that Paul had a great ministry blessed by God? Do you believe he was an example of what a 
faithful man of God should look like. And my last question is, do you want your last words to resemble Paul's last words? So before we approach the fight, I would like to just quickly remind you of what Aaron preached last week. Because even though it is important for us to do what we've just done, you know, approach the background of the letter, we should never go to the extreme of humanizing this letter to the point of making it only relevant to Timothy and to his culture. Differently than this current postmodern humanistic understanding that scriptures are just a bunch of outdated, politically incorrect writings, we must understand that the same God who supernaturally created the world in six days by fiat, by the power of his mouth, the same God who split the ocean, who split the seas in two for the Israelites to get by, the same God who resurrected Christ from the dead, the same God who changed your heart of stone and mine into a heart of flesh, this same God is more than capable of keeping this scripture inerrant, perfect, and profitable for the edification of the saints at all times. If you believe that God is powerful to raise Christ from the dead, you must believe that God is powerful to keep the scriptures inerrant. Therefore, while approaching this text, do not think that this is a mere advice of a friend or simply just uh, an opinion of a pastor. But look at this and see it how it is. It is God-appointed servant inspired by the Holy Spirit giving us instructions of how we should live. The Bible is one book with one ultimate author, the Holy Spirit. There is no room for error, no room for subjectivism in this regard. So therefore, with that in mind, with the tone of this portion of Scripture in mind, let's see what the Holy Spirit has to teach us through this exposition of Paul's epitaph. So let's read uh, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 6, verse 7, I'm sorry. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. So by analyzing this first portion, there is, we see that there is actually two really important things that, are, that we need to expose a little bit, a, a bit better. And first is the conception of uniqueness, the uniqueness of this fight and of this race. So the importance of the fight for Paul is due to its uniqueness. If you notice, Paul did not say, I have fought a good fight or I had finished a race. If he had said, I had fought a good fight, it would imply that there were other fights that was at least as noble or had equal value to this one. But Paul is careful enough to say that he had fought the good fight. And the article, the, claims its uniqueness, meaning that there is, that there is no other fight that is as noble as this one. Even going to Greek to a direct translation, you would see that the direct translation of this is the noble fight itself I have fought. So from all the fights 
this man has had, there's one that is the noble one. All other fights pale in significance if compared to this very one. Two, the other thing we must consider is the word fight. Since we quickly identified that the apostle was concerned enough to state that there was only one fight that is noble, would be fools to not consider what kind of fight is this. And going back to Greek again, this is really interesting. Because in Greek, there is two words for fight. There's two words for fight, but they have different, mean, they have different nuances. So we have the word uh, mahomai, which essentially means a soldier with a shield and a sword fighting in a battle. Is a soldier actually fighting to kill, to destroy someone. Like in James chapter 4, verse 2, we see that, for instance, uh, they use this word, machomai. It says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight with a shield and sword. You try to kill, you try to destroy and quarrel. However, on our text, it's not this word. It's not being, this, word is, this word is not being used. It's not mahomai. It is not the fight of an armed soldier that's being used. However, it is the word agon, which is interesting because agon is essentially the root for our English word for agony. So this Greek word has the idea of a fight, of a fighter in an arena, not beating up someone, but fighting to remain alive. He's fighting to remain alive. The literal translation of this is, I agonize the noble agony itself. You know when a person is, um, is drowning and they're fighting to be alive, they're fighting to survive, they're surely not trying to kill or destroy the water, but they're trying to, be, to remain alive. They're fighting for their life, and this is essentially what this word conveys. It conveys this idea of fighting to remain alive. We cannot confuse with the idea that we're beating up someone but it's not a fight to destroy. It's a fight to keep yourself alive. This is what this word means. So with these two matters in mind, we, we, we see that Paul has this noble fight, this struggle he's been through that he considered to be the noble one. And also, if uh, you want to see too, like the race... The race is essentially not just a 100-meter sprint. This race that Paul is talking about here is a marathon. It's a lifelong marathon. So what Paul is, is presenting here is this idea of agonizing through a lifelong fight, a lifelong marathon. 
And he's done both. He's done this good fight, this good agony. And he went through this lifelong marathon and his faith was kept. So at this point, if I'm doing this right, you might be curious, you might be asking, oh, what is this fight though? If this is the noblest fight a Christian could fight, I would like to sign in. And I mean, another thing too is like, this man, Paul, if this man considers this one fight to be the noble one, I mean, we need to sign in because if there is a man who has a great curriculum on fights, is the apostle Paul, isn't he? I mean, let's take his second epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 11, for instance. While he was rebuking uh, the Corinthian church for boasting on their accomplishments, he displays a little portion of the things he's been through in consequence of his fights. He says there, three times he was beaten with rods, once he was stoned, three times he was shipwrecked, and spent a night and day floating on deep waters. He was in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in evil of Jews, in perils of Gentiles, in perils in the cities, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. And that's all in consequence of his fights. He was a troublemaker. He was an experienced fighter. And let me add another thing too. He fought the leader of the church because of his hypocrisy. He fought Peter himself. He was an experienced fighter. But now I may ask you, are any of these fights the fight in which the apostle is talking about on his epitaph? Are any of these fights the one he considered his noble fight? Or can you even make it a bit more personal? Um, Let's talk about ourselves. Uh, Is the noble fight the fight for freedoms of religion? Or perhaps is the fight that we mentioned earlier, you know, like the fight of keeping our church open. Is that the noble fight? Or maybe it's a fight against the government. I mean, they're being pretty aggressive with their policies lately, aren't they? My friends, none of these fights express the feeling of a lifelong fight of survival. The fight Paul is talking about here is the fight that every Christian is engaged on ever since they receive a new heart from God. It is the fight of glorifying God, for glorifying God, for offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. It is the fight for holiness. The fight for being holy as our God in heaven is holy. You know, we, I know you guys have your men's uh, theology night on Tuesdays. I read in your bulletin. That's pretty cool. And one of the things that I think is really important for us to go through now in our theology is uh, we have this grasp of justification by faith alone, right? We do understand that, but it does not remain alone. It does surely start alone, but does not remain alone. Romans 6, chapter 3, 
uh, Romans 6, verse 3 to 14 says that when Christ saved us, he not only declared us just, but he made us just. It is not a simple declaration, but he turns us into a new, na- into a new creature. He gives us this newness of life. Or how we put in our youth, um, I explained to them that God did not only change our F to an A+, plus, but he, he did change our F to an A+, plus. however, he made you a nerd. He made you want to study, and that's essentially the idea here. He not only makes us, declares us just, but he makes us just people. And that's the noble fight. A writer commenting on the noble fight says that he, Paul, had maintained a warfare against the world, the flesh, and the devil. He had run his race with unceasing zeal and ardor. Meaning on final stance that the greatest fight is not the fight against false doctrine. It is not the fight against atheism. And believe it or not, it's not the fight against liberals. It is not even the fight for lost souls. The greatest of the fights is the arduous fight. It's the arduous pursuit of holiness. It is the Christian lifelong commitment to godliness. So when a Christian is born again, he and she are not only declared righteous, but they are also made righteous. He and she are now new creatures. They are united with Christ's death and resurrection by baptism. Thus their obsession turns into Christ's obsession. What was Christ's obsession? What was Christ's obsession? To do the Father's will. And what is the Father's will? Your sanctification. So this new nature, this new heart, this new creature wants to fight sin. They are not content with it. It is against their nature. Sins is for them like drinking sand while thirsty. Many scriptures talk about this, but we stand behind justification by faith alone, and we don't progress from that. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 says that the Christian should be putting to death what's earthly in them, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness. It is also a life by the Spirit. Romans chapter 8 verse 13 says that the Christian puts to death the deeds of the body. A famous theologian, Joe Owen, says that for to pretend that man may live habitually sinful lives without any attempt by the Spirit to mortify sin in them, nor without desire for repentance, is to deny the Christian religion. Please now, do not think that I'm saying that the fight against false doctrine, the fight of faith, or even the fight of uh, evangelism are not good fights. Because I affirm they are. However, the text tells that the noble fight, the greatest fight a Christian can ever fight, is an inner fight. 
is the fight for holiness. And if you don't put all your efforts towards this fight, all the other fights will be meaningless. And this is why the apostle agonizes the agony, my friends. This is the most painful path that exists. It is the path of self-denial. It is the fight against the flesh. It is the new self fighting against the old self. This is a painful fight. And don't forget about race. This is marathon toward the goal. What is the goal? Holiness. 1 Corinthians 9.25, Paul says that, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. My friends, Paul had his goal set to keep his body under submission, to pursue holiness, not to avoid the thing, not only to avoid the things that he shouldn't do, but also to pursue the things he should do. The Christian faith is not a passive faith that you once were saved and you can just sit and watch. You render us with scars. It will be painful because we're going to face the worst of our own selves. We're going to search our hearts and see how sinful we are. And we're going to fight against it every single day of our lives. It's going to be a constant fight. The more mature we get in our faith, the less we sin, but the worse we feel about the sin that remains. We press on, we agonize, we hate every aspect of it. Another interesting point of the text is that Paul never said that he actually won this fight or got first place on this race. We find ourselves some days victorious on this fight, don't we? However, other days we are completely defeated. Some days we will notice that, um, you know, there's nothing that's going to take us from diligently reading our scriptures, praying, and uh, helping other friends in faith to, for their edification. However, there's other days that we just are lazy. We just can't do anything. We just can't pass our own selves. All we think about is our own selves and don't give it even a thought about our religious duties. Again, remember, Paul does not state he won the agony, but he struggled through it. That's really important. He did not win the race. He finished it. So, I mean, would you ever engage in a fight that you're never going to win? Would you? <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't, I wouldn't engage in a race, I w- uh, a fight I would never win. So why would Paul be engaged in this if he's aware that this is a lost fight? What's the reasonable answer for that? And the answer for that is provided by Paul in verse 8. Let's read. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. 
And not only me, but also all who have loved his appearing. So now we turn to Paul's fuel. Because there is victory awaiting for him. He knows that there is a crown that is going to be given to him by the Lord. What is this crown? The substance of this crown is righteousness. This crown is righteousness itself. Turning to Greek, you're going to see that the crown is essentially the award. And the award is righteousness. So Paul is envisioning that there is a crown which is righteousness that's saved for him. And what does that mean? That means perfect obedience. And not to Paul only, but to all who have loved his appearing. So at the end of his epitaph, we see that what his eyes seek. They seek exactly the thing he was fighting his whole life for, to honor and please his Lord. Is this your greatest desire? So this crown is essentially the fuel that keeps him fighting this noble fight. And it should be what keeps you and me. Because if you are in him, if you love him, if you have loved his appearing, his first coming, this crown is what should keep you confident on your fight. Because it is certain that one day we'll finally be able to honor the Lord with all our capacities. This, my friends, is finally a day in which we'll be able to provide to God, to give to God something good. Finally, able to honor God with all our hearts, all our minds. But it's interesting because um, many come to this verse and see that they will not um, only be able to receive, they, they will only be able to receive this award as a consequence of the quality of their fight. They believe that this crown is a retribution to the quality of their fight. Is that true though? If you notice, this crown is given by the righteous judge to all who have loved his appearing. Not to all who have done good at the fight or done a good job at the race. And, the ma and another major hint to interpret this is placed on the conjunction henceforth. This conjunction literally means even now. So this do does not express that the crown is a result of Paul's fight. Because of the essentially because of the grammatical context, but also because there is plenty of scriptures that refute works, uh, works salvation theology. But it actually emphasized that through the fight, through the race, Paul had one thing in mind. And it was the crown, that the crown of righteousness was a reality saved for him. And one day, all this agony, 
would be gone and he would be finally able to please his Lord with all his capacities once and for all. Commenting on this, John Calvin again says in his Institutes that we should not suppose then that the Holy Spirit by this promise commends the dignity of our works as if they were deserving of a such reward. For Scripture leaves us nothing that of which we may glory in the sight of God, no rather its whole object us to repress, humble, cast dumb, and completely crush our pride. But in this, in this way, help is given to our weakness, which would immediately give way were it not sustained by this expectation and soothed by this comfort. So henceforth, in this context, it states that Paul, in the midst of his contemplation of the fight for his life, he had an inspiration to keep on fighting. He had something that motivated him more than anything would. Another theologian commenting on this says that, looking at the, the whole scheme of salvation, he says that God chose me in Christ that being purchased in time and called in time, I might, be, I might begin to be holy in time and have that work perfected in eternity. So God chose me in Christ that being purchased in time and called in time, I might begin to be holy in time and have that work perfected in eternity. So the crown of righteousness does not come from the fighting. It does not come from the running. It comes directly from the righteous judge who is the only one capable of giving it. My friends, the very thing that Paul died pursuing is what kept him fighting. The very thing that Paul died pursuing, he now in glory possesses fully. It isn't that what the Sermon on the Mountain promises us. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And my friends, I do not want you to think that I'm preaching here to you from a place of authority on this battle. This sermon has been echoing my mind through, throughout the week. I preach this sermon to myself many times. And whenever I lose, I'm losing this fight. There's only one thing that comforts me. And it's that one day, one day, I'm going to be able to offer something good to God. And this is my fear too. This is what keeps me fighting it is to know that there is a crown waiting for me. And this crown, no one can snatch away from his hands. This crown has my name on it, has the perfect shape of my head. And he has for you also, if you love his appearing. So as I said earlier, my goal here today is for us to reset our GPSs to the right direction and perhaps remind us of why we are fighting this noble fight against our own flesh. 
We are to engage in this fight daily. This is, this is a desire that's placed by God when he provided us with this new nature, with this new spirit. So if you're not a Christian, and all of a sudden you want to please the Lord, and you have never wanted it before, but there is this weird desire in your heart, that's a good sign. Perhaps the Lord is giving you a new heart today. And the scripture says that if today you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but turn to him. Repent. Trust in the works of Jesus Christ and list yourself in this noble fight. And for those who have been fighting, but somehow got lost amongst other fights, come back. List yourself to this noble fight. You have the church to support you. You have brothers and sisters who would help you on that. There's also really good biographies um, that could help you on that. I've been reading um, George Whitfield's biography, and that has been really encouraging. Because this is no new battle for the Christian faith. The Puritans, for example, a group from the 16th century, they were known for their great emphasis on God's glory and the mortification of sin, the killing of sin. Uh, one of the Puritans called Jonathan Edwards, he, when he was 19 years old and he turned believer, he wrote 70 resolutions of how he would be, um, that would guide him to honor and praise God the most, how he could find sin more effectively. He wrote that when he was 19 years old. This fight is not new for the giants of faith. This was Paul's obsession. This was the Puritan's obsession. And this should be our obsession too. So before I finish, I was um, reading the other day an article on uh, William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce is also considered a Puritan. He was a Christian, a really wise man. And most of his, I would say that most of his, not Fight. Yeah, most of his fight or most of his known works are toward slavery. He was an advocate against slavery. He was, one, he was one of the first persons who fought slavery because he believed that all men are made in the image of God. So they deserve dignity and so on. And it was interesting that this article was talking about um, these journals that they found. They found William Wilberforce's journals. And it was an exciting finding because, you know, like there's this whole racial issues going on right now. And they wanted to know what was in his journals, what was in his mind while he was fighting against slavery. So they would comprehend a bit better um, the racial issues that's going on right now. But the interesting thing is that the external fight that William Wilberforce had was different than the inner fight he had. Because on his journals, there was nothing Nothing about slavery. The only thing that was on his journal was William Wilberforce's repenting heart. The only thing that was in his journal was 
him turning to God and asking for forgiveness and this inner battle against his own sin. So we must recognize that William Wilberforce's fight against slavery was great, was a great fight. However, his obsession was against his sin. Is that our obsession too? Do you make this your job every day? Do you wake up every day wanting and desiring to resemble more the image of our Lord? Are you engaged in this war? So I hope that today the epitaph of Paul may be an encouragement to you and me. So then we may be able to come to the feet of the cross and sing out loud, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the mountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come to your presence today with thankful hearts. Because we know that we have not only, you have not only declared us righteous, but we made us righteous. Please, Lord, keep this fight for sanctification in the center of our hearts and minds. So then all the other fights we may be engaged on may resemble this holy war that happens within. Please help us to fight against sin daily and diligently. Not for the applause of the crowds nor for the fear of hell, but because we are yours and all we want is to please and honor you. Help us to remember your apostle's epitaph, to help us, to help us to remember that you have sent your son to die for us so then we might be free from sin, Lord. Make your church a place that encourages and helps Christian warriors to fight this noble battle daily. Help us to repent when we sin, Lord. All of these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to our doxology, which is found in Romans chapter 16, verse 25 to 27. So now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed and, th and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the, of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Christ, through Jesus Christ. Amen.